tonight's teaching comes from Exodus chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 14 through 24, which read as follow. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river and confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take any of this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. All right. For five weeks now, we have been taking a look at the story of Exodus. And it's been, you know, kind of narrative dominant. And I'm going to explain why here in a second. But specifically, just if, if you haven't been here the entire time, what we've been doing is we've been saying that Exodus is a real historical account, an important chapter in the salvation history of God's people. But it also serves, spiritually speaking, as a mirror for God's people so that we recognize the spiritual voyage and journey that all of us are in, in the wilderness, until we get eventually to the promised land. And what's happened thus far is we've been introduced to Moses, who, remember, he thwarts death at birth. So like he should have died right off the bat, but he is saved by God's sovereign design. And he uh, is adopted into the palace to the princess. He's nannied by his mom for a while, but then for the first 40 years of his life or so, he gets the palace education. After 40 years, he's so offended by what he sees going on amongst the Egyptians and their oppression of his people, the Hebrews, that in a fit of rage, he goes out and kills an Egyptian taskmaster. He's got to run for his life. He goes to a foreign land called Midian. For another 40 years, he serves as a shepherd there. So he's 80 years old. He finds himself in the middle of the desert uh, with nothing but sheep. He's distracted and disrupted by a burning bush in the desert. And God calls out to him from that bush. And he says, I've brought you in to redeem you and to purify you by my holiness, but I've done it for a purpose. I am sending you back to the place where you originally screwed up back in Egypt and I'm going to use you for redemptive purposes and I'm going to lead you to deliver my people out of Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey to the promised land. There's just one problem. There's an obstacle in the way and that obstacle happens to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. 
And Pharaoh does not want to let his several million member, mostly free labor force go, kind of understandably. And so this is going to be problematic. And God is going to have to unleash a series of plagues into Egypt that loosens Pharaoh's grip. uh, So that persuades him to let the Israelites go. But You know, there's two common reactions to the story of the 10 plagues, obviously a very famous account. The two common, I would say, like natural or flesh reactions to the stories of the plagues, number one is some people are almost kind of into it. You know, like a little bit giddy that the wicked people finally get their comeuppance, right? And to some extent, that's, that's understandable because there's a healthy impulse for justice and fairness, and we understand that civilization cannot exist without some level of justice. On the other hand, the other natural reaction that people have to stories of the plagues is, see, this is why I don't like religion and why I don't like the Bible. Because you have this angry, vindictive God uh, who uh, is out there to look for somebody to slip up and then judge them accordingly. And in fact, it's, the, it's almost the giddiness of the self-righteous people that really turns people off uh, because they say, see, this is what's wrong with the world. It's self-righteous religious people who are um, all too happy to delight in the mistakes that other human beings make. And, and what that is, that's also partially right. That is a natural craving for love and mercy and humility. And, and society, civilization, can't really exist without love and unity either. So, like, there's this natural tension. It's the tension between, civilization can't exist without justice, but civilization, who would want to live in it if it doesn't have love and mercy, right? Um, By the way, don't think that it hasn't not dawned on me that we're talking about the the plagues during the course of a year-long, like, pandemic, and that there is potentially some overlap going on here. In fact, Uh, A number of religious leaders over the course of the last nine, 10 months have sort of taken the bait from the media as far as drawing a clear line between pandemic and social issues. And so, for instance, uh, various religious leaders have gone on record as to suggest, for instance, that the coronavirus, maybe that is God's judgment against like same-sex marriage, or maybe the coronavirus is God's judgment against um, the, the anti-religious policy of China or, or something to that effect. And it reminds me, about a decade ago, a famous uh, TV uh, evangelist, Pat Robertson, went on his show, The 700 Club. And this was at a time where there was this absolutely devastating earthquake that completely decimated Haiti. And Pat Robertson on the show very aggressively and authoritatively said, yeah, this is probably God's judgment on the nation of Haiti for several hundred years ago in their liberation. They made a pact with uh, the devil to bring about their liberation. And I mean, there is a history of voodoo and whatnot and witchcraft in Haiti, but he very authoritatively said, yes, their problems, the problems that this culture faces directly a judgment from God. Now, I don't want to get into that. What I do want to say, what I do want to say is like, that's a legitimate question. Like these are things that are worth wrestling with for God's people in 2020. Does God operate the same way today as he operated back then with Pharaoh and the Egyptians and with Moses and the Israelites? That's, you have to answer that question if you're going to study the plagues. And for that matter, you know, if we're going to answer that question intelligently, I think you have to very much ensure that you understand exactly what God is doing 
during the plagues and not just assume you know what he's doing. Don't react with your, your gut and don't react just with your thoughts and your culturally conditioned whatever. Study what he actually does and then make an assessment about what God would do, okay? So that's our account for tonight. Let's jump into the lesson or the ramp up into the lesson. First of all, we looked, we read through Exodus 5 a couple minutes ago. And it's a good backdrop to the specific text of Exodus 7 because God has sent Moses and now his brother Aaron with, remember, he was given three signs to convince the elders of Israel that he was in fact sent by God to deliver the Israelites from the slavery of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now he's gone to Pharaoh and he says, I want you to release my people, the Hebrews, so that they can go out into the wilderness to celebrate a three-day worship festival. And Pharaoh's response to that, pretty famously here, is, why? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? That's the statement. That is the, you know, the defiance and the ignorance and the arrogance that seems to like trigger the launch of the plagues into Egypt. And yet, again, I mentioned this already, uh, this is not an easy decision for Pharaoh. He lets his free labor system go out into the wilderness for three days. Okay, we're gonna shut down our economy for three days. This is gonna be very costly. Not to mention, what if they decide not to come back? You know, like I'm gonna have to send my troops out there to have to round them up and bring them back. Otherwise, the Egyptian economy collapses and therefore I can't do that. I won't do that. And not only is Pharaoh not gonna do that, he is so offended by the proposition that he says, I'm going to ramp up the intensity of the oppression that they face. Not only do they have to make uh, the building bricks that they've been making, but now they have to go and find the materials. They have to go find the straw to make the bricks. And, you know, so as a result of all this, the Hebrews are discouraged and Moses is discouraged and Moses cries out to God and says, what is going on here? And God essentially says, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to release something into the Egyptians' lives that is going to, you're going to talk about it for ages. The Egyptians are going to talk about it for ages and people are going to repent and learn from this for generations moving forward. So God says, all right, Moses, tomorrow I want you to go down to Pharaoh at his regular spot in the Nile. Now remember, on the banks of the Nile, this is 80 years later, Moses' life was redeemed for a moment like this. God doesn't, doesn't just deliver us, he always delivers us for a purpose. And Moses' life has built up to this moment and he says, you need to let my people go so they can go and worship God. And if you don't, God is not going to stop, he is just going to ratchet up the intensity by which he forces you to pull your fingers off the oppression of these people. And just as a reminder, quick review of the 10 plagues. There is a ratcheting up in intensity. So the first of the plagues, the first three of the plagues are essentially like distressful and disturbing, but you can survive them. So the Nile River and the water turns into blood and then the next plague is the plague of frogs and then plague after that is the plague of gnats. Again, very irritating and kind of scary, but not uh, fatal. The second of the three plagues, the second battery of three, is, is painful and it's costly. It's flies and it's the death of all the livestock outside and it's the boils on the human skin. And the third set of plagues 
the three next three plagues are dangerous and destructive. There's a hailstorm, there's locusts, and there is the darkness that sets over. And the last of the plagues is the plague that you know completely crushes their hope and will and spirit, and it's the slaughter of the firstborn sons in Egypt, right? But here's the lesson. It ramps up in intensity. And the concept is the longer you resist God's word and the longer you fight God's will, it doesn't mean he stops. It means he ratchets up his force. If you won't listen to God's word, he won't stop speaking. He'll just turn up the volume. You see? All right. So the first of these plagues, the one that we just read about a second ago, is the water of the Nile being turned into blood. Now, um, it, it's, it isn't just the Nile, by the way. It's the, he says it's the other water sources in Egypt. So the canals and the streams and the reservoirs and stuff like that. Um, and I, I think it's, it's also worth noting, perhaps, that there is, some have suggested, maybe this is just some kind of natural phenomenon, uh, because there is actually an annual um, phenomenon that takes place in Egypt at the Nile River where during the flood season, the red particles of earth are stirred up in such a way that it does change the color approximately of the river. Is that what's going on here perhaps? No, it can't be. And it's brilliantly baked into the text why it can't be that. Why? Because it doesn't, look, you see the details where it said all the fish died and it said that the water really stunk and it said that the Israelites couldn't drink it, that isn't because of a change in color. That's because there's some kind of substantive and material change of the water of the Nile. And this is going to last a good uh, week or so. However, as disruptive as it is, as impressive as it is, as terrifying as this miracle is to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, it doesn't change Pharaoh's mind. And that's at least due in part because Pharaoh's advisors, who fancy themselves magicians, are able to replicate the miracle in some respect. Now, we don't, they're able to take some more water, perhaps like from a well, and turn it into something that resembles blood. Now, I don't think we should look at this merely as a trick. It seems to be that they're actually summoning some kind of, you know, dark magic, dark acts, dark forces kind of thing going on here. And that, don't let that throw you. That, that shouldn't surprise us as God's people because the Bible very clearly throughout talks about the powers of Satan and the fallen angels, the demonic powers that are the real struggle that we fight against in this world, the spiritual forces of this world are the real threat um, and they're more powerful than we are. And yet, the interesting thing is, like you have to see this, if they really were all that powerful, if, see, they can turn water into blood, just like Moses is doing. If they wanted to demonstrate a miracle that was really helpful, if they wanted to show that they had power over the God of Israel, what miracle would they have performed? They would have taken the blood, the water was turned into blood, they would have taken the blood and they would have turned it back into water because that would have actually been helpful. The only thing they can do, in other words, look at it like this. Satan, is Satan powerful? Yes, the Satan has corrupting power. Satan does not have redemptive power. And that's different. Redemptive power is much more powerful than corrupting power. And you guys, like you know what I'm talking about. If, if uh, as an adult, you could build a, an awesome Lego tower that stood six feet high uh, and it was really impressive. It took you hours to do, and there's, there's even like a TV show about this now, right? Where it's, it's adults get to play with Legos in 2020, and it's, it's totally nor socially normal. Uh, an adult can build a six-foot tower. 
a two or three-year-old can come along and knock that tower over. A two or three-year-old can't build the six-foot tower, but they can destroy the tower. In other words, they have enough power to corrupt what is made, but they don't have enough power. It takes more power to actually build it in the first place. So redemptive power is more significant power than corrupting power. And the powers of Satan are only corrupting. They're never redemptive. And yet, nonetheless, in all of this, uh, because the advisors are capable of imitating something that resembles Moses' miracle, Pharaoh, that's enough. Uh, that's enough for me to go in my house, forget about what's happened. The text literally says he doesn't take any of this to heart, and therefore God has to turn up the volume, right? So that's the text. I, there's so much more that I could and want to say about it, but I want to get into the lessons first, because there's a bunch of great stuff to take from this too. First of all, first point, they're freed for the purpose of worship. Here's what I mean. Um, We've been doing in Exodus a heavy emphasis on the narrative accounts of Exodus, and for good reason. You know, stories like the plagues and the burning bush and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and the, the, the golden calf and all that stuff. But if you actually read through all of Exodus, and some of you have, it, because we've been worshiping our way through this book in the series, um, and you've noticed that something happens around chapter 25. So for the first 25 chapters or so, it's the same kind of provocative, interesting narratives that we see like in the book of Genesis. But then you get to chapters 25 through 40 and you find what? It reads like an owner's manual. It's guidelines on the priesthood. It's guidelines on the tabernacle, how to build the tabernacle. It's guidelines for worship. Now, what's going on there? What's, what's that all about? Well, the, the answer to that and the secret to all that is actually found here in the dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh. And you, it's really easy to miss. Especially American Christians, I think, are inclined to miss this because when we quote what Moses communicates to Pharaoh, what do people always say? If they know at all what Moses says, they say, yeah, he went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. You notice God, Moses never actually says just that. Never. He never just says, let my people go. American Christians think that because it, like an icon of American cinema is Charlton Heston, you know, saying, saying, let my people go. And for that matter, Americans love the trope of self of, of liberation and breaking the oppression and be, being set free. Moses never actually just says, let my people go. What does he say? You saw, you've heard it three times already today and I want to make sure that you can catch it. Exodus 5 at the beginning, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Uh, let us take a three-day journey to go into the wilderness in order to offer sacrifices to our God. And then just a minute ago in Exodus 7, we read, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. God, God does not send Moses to Pharaoh and say, just let my people go. He always says, let my people go so that they can worship me, so that they can offer sacrifices to me, so that they can hold worship festivals to me out in the wilderness. In other words, God doesn't just free the Israelites to free the Israelites. He frees the Israelites for a specific purpose so that they can do what God created and Jesus redeemed and the Holy Spirit has inspired them to do, which is worship him. And if you hold the, the mirror of Exodus up to your life, this is God's exact intention. What is, what is my meaning? What is my purpose? What is God's intention for my, that you worship him in the wilderness. That's the goal of life. Now, what is, it, what is that? Okay, that's kind of a complicated question too because it, it involves corporate worship. That's what we're doing right now. But the, the word worship, the concept of worship, the, old, the word worship comes from the old English, which was, it said, worth shape. Worth shape 
means it's like doing a home appraisal or if you work at a pawn shop and you're assessing the value of something. You, you look at the shape and you analyze the value of it and you determine how much it's worth. Now, what true worship is in the wilderness is to look around and say, okay, for what God has done for me, because he has freed me from the sin that I, that I accrued as debt, because he has freed me from all of the enemies that would otherwise oppress me, sin, Satan, and death, because he has freed me and gifted to me a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm guaranteed to have all that coming to me, then when I look around in the wilderness of life, the thing that matters the most is the God who did all of that for me. And so what's the goal of your life? The goal is you move forward towards the promised land that you would, you would assess the worth of God in your life and you would praise him for all that value. He never just frees you. He never just liberates you. He frees you for the specific intent of worshiping him. Okay? Uh, second point, um, natural consequences. This one's, uh, this is amazing too. The, Last week, I mentioned that Moses uh, was given three signs to go to the Israelite elders, and they weren't random. You know, when you're a kid and you go through your Sunday school lessons and you think they're kind of just these random tricks that he does, and they're not random at all. They're, they're deeply symbolic. Same thing is true with the 10 plagues, except they're not just symbolic. They're in a sense, they're absolutely miraculous, but in another sense, the natural flow of them is almost obvious. And I'll explain what I mean to you by this. It's clearly and entirely God's hand in doing it, but there is something of a, I'm gonna use the word non-miraculous order, the natural flow that's attached to the plagues. And this is incredibly applicable, right? Uh, I'll explain why in a second. But first of all, let's just walk through the plagues real quick. I need you to see the natural flow of the plagues. The first of the plagues, again, very clearly, this is God's hand, this is divine intervention, and he turns the Nile, which is a god to the Egyptians, he turns it into blood. So it's, he's killing the gods of Egypt. Obviously, clearly a miracle. What's the second of the, of the plagues? Frogs. Where did all these frogs come from? Did they just, you know there are a bunch of myths and legends about frogs falling out of the sky? I don't think that's what's happening here. The frogs didn't just fall out of the sky. All the frogs that were finding habitat in the Nile River don't want that corrupted water anymore because they're gonna die in there. So they get up out of the water and they go on to dry ground. Now they're looking for other water, but when they can't find any, what happens to them? They die. Okay, second plague is the frogs coming out and dying. What are frogs main predators to? Bugs, okay? What are plagues three and four? Gnats, and, it's, and we don't know exactly what the Hebrew word is. It's something like gnats or ticks or lice or something like that, but some kind of contaminating bug. And the fourth plague is flies. Interestingly enough about bugs. Look, the fifth and sixth plagues, bugs tend to be really good spreaders of disease. Uh, we know this even in recent history. I mean, just in the past 20 years, we've been battling stuff like and scared of things like West Nile virus, right? Um, so what are the things that break out for the fifth and sixth plague? But you have somehow mysteriously all the livestock in the field start dying and humans start getting plagues of boils on their skin. In other words, it seems like there's some kind of epidemic being released out into Egypt. 
Okay, so there's a natural flow to these. Now you get to the seventh plague and it's, it's a little bit different, but there's nonetheless seemingly, it's, it's a natural kind of plague happening. So the seventh of the plague is the hailstorm. Now, there's a number of different theories as to what exactly is going on here, but it's entirely possible that around the Mediterranean world, where there's some volcanic activity, a volcano erupts, uh, ashes in the sky. When that ash combines with the Egyptian thunderstorms, that creates an environment that is perfect and ideal for a hailstorm, a catastrophic hailstorm. When a hailstorm gets released into an ecosystem, it also does other things that cre creates certain scientific anomalies like high precipitation levels and uh, high levels of humidity, which create a perfect environment for locusts, which is your eighth plague. Not to mention it provides some kind of uh, explanatory power for the ninth of the plagues, which is the releasing of darkness into Egypt. And different people have speculated how exactly does darkness cover over the land? And maybe this is some kind of solar eclipse. That does not work. Why doesn't that work? because the ninth plague does not impact the Israelites. A solar eclipse would have impacted the Israelites who are right next to Egypt, uh, the Egyptians in Goshen. But it's only, it's localized and it's regional and maybe something like a thick clouder of darkness and ash could explain what's going on here. And I won't even get into any potential explanation for the 10th plague, the slaughter of the firstborn kids. But here's what I, here's what I need you to see. This is entirely God's hand. And so I've done a lot, of, a lot of research on this kind of stuff. I've read a bunch of articles. Every night this past week, I ended up watching a documentary on, the, on Exodus and, and the plagues and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's all these different scholars that are looking, uh, scientists, historians, Bible commentators who are looking for some kind of naturalistic explanation to the plagues of Egypt. Now, they're looking for a naturalistic explanation because... Partially because they want to get around the concept of God, but partially because there's a very clear and unequivocal natural flow to the plagues. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not at all saying this isn't the hand of God. This very clearly is the hand of God. But how's he working? What's going on exactly in the plagues? This is really helpful. These don't seem to be like just random lightning bolts that God is sending down from the sky. And that's helpful for understanding God's general operation in the world. These plagues seem to be like the decreation of the earth. What does that mean? The earth is rebelling against mankind as mankind rebels against God. You see that? Specifically, Pharaoh is defying God. And so what God is doing is he's having the stuff that is subjected to the dominion of Pharaoh rebel against Pharaoh. That is a very typical way in which God, God usually deals with humanity's defiance, humanity's rebellion, and humanity's sin by letting the natural established order that he's already created the world with to bring about his judgment into the world. The breakdown is entirely God's hand. The disintegration that's going on here is entirely God's judgment, but he typically works through the naturally created established order. Now, here's why this is so helpful and so applicable. I'm gonna give you a couple different examples and you're gonna find thousands more in your own lives. Let me just give you a couple to begin with here. Maybe the most obvious one is your body. God has things that he wants you to do with your body and a will for your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so if you go to the doctor and she says to you, you know what, your blood pressure is too high and your blood sugar is too high and your cholesterol is too high and you're pre-diabetic, 
And what I need from you is I need you to stop eating so much junk food and start working out more and sleep more and uh, not work at your job quite so much. And if you turn and say to her, how dare you? This is my body. I get to do with my body whatever I want to do. Now, you're allowed to do that. Just don't be surprised when it breaks down. Just don't be surprised when it blows up in your face. Why? Because you not only defied the design of your body, you defied the will of someone who knows how your body operates much better than you do. And you released that plague into your own life. You released that plague upon your body. Now, once you understand this basic principle of the natural order and judgment of God, it, you start to see it in everything. So for instance, your work. Does God command any kind of Sabbath rest in your life? Absolutely, God commands Sabbath rest. Uh, so what happens if you become a workaholic? You put in 100 hours a week at the office and you are, um, you're getting promotions, you become the CEO of your own business, you're making tons of money. This is why every year somebody should, uh, everybody should watch uh, Christmas Carol or read a Christmas Carol at this time because it is the ultimate cautionary tale for workaholism. Because in Ebenezer Scrooge, you find a guy who has like worked forever, but at what cost? He doesn't learn it till the end. All of the relationships in his life, all the romance in his life, the health and personal wellness in his life is all completely gone because he sacrificed it at the altar of work. When you defy God's order and his command for Sabbath rest, just understand you're going to release natural plagues into your life. Um, what about uh, your emotional health and wellness? God absolutely commands that you forgive one another. Uh, what happens if you don't forgive? Well, forgive in the Bible literally means to let something go. So if you don't forgive in the sense of letting the wrongs that others commit against you, if you don't let that go, what does that mean you're doing with it? You're holding on to it. You're carrying it all the time. Now, if you take all the wrongs that are ever committed against you and you continue to hold on to them for the rest of your life, it is going to age you rapidly and break you down and you're going to get angry and bitter and paranoid. Why? Because you defied God's command, you released a plague upon your emotional and psychological health and wellness. Um, I'm going to skip the one on sexuality just for time's sake here, but I'll, I'll do one more. Your society. Um, God's commands are that we share with those who, ha who have needs. That those who have share with those who have not. What happens if we defy God's design? Well, what happens if you work more and you make a lot more money, but you don't become at all more generous? It creates, we hear a lot about this in, in the news today, this creates something called a wealth gap, right? Uh, if those who have do not share with those who have not ultimately inevitably leads to social and political disintegration, societal plague. God said, do this. We said, no, I don't want to. I'm going to do that. Okay, don't be, don't be surprised when this releases plagues into society. Do you understand how this works? Do you see how almost painfully natural the judgment in God's brilliant created order actually is? Um, the 10 plagues are not random lightning bolts. They are the natural outcome of the chaotic forces that God releases into the world when we try to live as our own gods. Let's say that one more time real quick just to make sure you got this point. The 10 plagues are not lightning bolts. They are the natural outcome of the chaotic forces that God releases into the world 
when human beings defy him, ignore his word, and say we're going to live as our own gods. Okay? Now, brings me to my final point. Man, in the plagues, is there any grace in all of the plagues? Yes, there is. I'm going to give you three evidences of God's grace in all of this. Uh, and it's, it's really pretty extraordinary. I mentioned at the beginning that one of the reasons why a lot of people have troubles with texts like this is because they perceive God as angry and petty and vindictive. And that's, that's just not a good analysis. Not if you're actually thinking it through carefully. Let me show you why. Here's three things. Number one, if God was really, if God was really ticked at the Egyptians and he just wanted them to suffer for all their wrongdoing, why on earth would he send a messenger to Pharaoh to say, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen? In other words, if he just wants to torture them, why does he give them an out? Why does he encourage repentance? Why does he uh, allow this kind of, the best example of this perhaps is in Exodus chapter nine. It's this, the seventh of the plagues, uh, the hailstorm, where God specifically says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, take all your livestock out in the fields and take all the workers who are out in the fields and warn them to go inside and take shelter because I'm gonna send a hailstorm on them. If God is just some kind of vengeful jerk, why is he worried about saving the animals out in the fields and the workers out in the fields and telling them to run for cover. It's because he's not a vengeful jerk. These plagues, they are gradual. They're always done with warning. And they're very clearly meant to bring repentance and salvation, not death. Even in God's judgment, he's demonstrating mercy here. Let me give you a second thing. Very clearly, God is trying to liberate the Hebrews in the plagues. And so anybody who says, oh, loving God doesn't act this way. Just remember, he's acting against the wrongful enslavement of the Israelites, which everybody understands that that in and of itself is wrong. So he's got to use some force to free them. So, but not only, here's the interesting thing. He's not only trying to liberate the Hebrews, you know who he's also liberating? He's trying to liberate the Egyptians from their spiritual confusion and their idolatry. And that becomes very clear when you continue to read through the book of Exodus and you get to chapter 12 and we're told that it isn't just the Israelites that leave Egypt. It specifically says many others, including the Egyptians, end up traveling out of Egypt with the Israelites. In other words, these are people that God worked on even through the plagues. He called them to repentance. They humbled themselves. They repented of their false gods and they turned and said, we want to follow the Lord God of Israel moving forward. Not only that, not only is he redeeming the Hebrews and he's liberating the, some of the Egyptians here, but God says, I'm going to use this story throughout the world and for generations to come, like, you know, 3,500 years later uh, at St. Marcus, I'm going to use this story and I'm going to tell people about the good things that I have done for my people and how they should repent and turn to me. And he says, I'm going to set the world free through this. Now, Here's the thing. I get it. Are the plagues destructive? Yes. But don't, let's not be simplistic about it. Are they destructive? Yes. Are they redemptive? Yes. Those are not mutually exclusive concepts. Very clearly, uh, God is liberating the Hebrews from slavery. He's liberating the Egyptians from spiritual confusion. And he's liberating future generations so that they would repent and turn to him. The very same act that can destroy can also be totally redemptive. Those are not mutually exclusive concepts. And you know this. What is, what is surgery? 
When you cut into somebody in surgery, when you take a knife to somebody and they're bleeding everywhere and they're wide open and they're hurt and they're in pain and they're vulnerable and they could die. But if you take that cancerous tumor out of them and you save their life, the same thing that could have destroyed them actually redeems them. You understand? Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. The same destructive act can, in fact, be enormously redemptive. And that's totally on brand with what God does in the gospel. Why? Because the same one who takes the ultimate destruction offers the ultimate redemption. And you know this. You know how this works. Uh, Because you, you can't actually get through the story of the plagues until you get to the story of Jesus because when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying for the sins of the entire world, you know how it's described? In Matthew's gospel, I need you to see the symmetry between what goes on here in the story of the plagues and what happens at the cross. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 27, verse 45, it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. A regional localized plague of darkness covers Jerusalem. And you know what the actual just next verse in Matthew says? And then the firstborn son of God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The firstborn son gets slaughtered. It is without question the culmination of the plagues. Jesus is being treated like a defiant, unrepentant enemy of God, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, I thought Jesus was the perfect, innocent son of God. Why is he getting treated like a defiant, unrepentant son of God? Because he so loves the world because he loves you and me. At the cross, Jesus took the judgment of the enemies of God so that we would undeservedly get forever treated as the children of God in the promised land. You know he's not some kind of vindictive, petty God when you understand that Jesus is the judge who came into the world to bear judgment for his people. And what that means is we can move forward trusting him whatever lesser plagues we might face in life. And therefore, in this judgment, even in judgment, we find that God is patient, God is merciful, God is redemptive. God would rather take all the plagues of Egypt and actually God would rather take all the plague of hell than let you see any real harm in the wilderness of life. And therefore, you can follow him and move forward confidently. Let's pray. Father, this year has been frustratingly full of plague. But we still praise you. We still worship you in the wilderness. Your son took the ultimate plague, so our hope is incredibly secure for the promised land. We praise you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.